In the early months of 1993, the United States was put on notice. In a country that hadn't faced much in the way of homeland terror, an explosion in the heart of one of the nation's most populous cities instilled foreign fear in the hearts of Americans. A near one-ton bomb obliterated multiple floors of a parking garage beneath two of the biggest symbols of American economic might, the World Trade Centers. Eight years before the Twin Towers would be reduced to rubble, this blast was the biggest terroristic threat on American soil. And today, on the Gems of History, we will explain how it all happened. Same time I have this stupid rash is when this <laughs> scratch from Viv is healing. So that's Frickin also Viv. itching. <laughs> so like, I am just struggling right now. What if she's actually responsible for the rash and you're turning into a werewolf? That. We are uh, not liable. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't sign a waiver. So. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Seinfeld episode where he shaves. Oh, he yeah. Jump off the bus. <laughs> that's me right now. Man, so you're just kind of going through it. Yeah, I guess. Going I, guess. Through the I, it's like so funny to me. I was talking to a friend in a group chat that I'm in. It's like it's hilarious how my body just is completely debilitated by using a new deodorant. But then there's this guy in Russia in like the 70s that stuck his head into a particle accelerator and he's still alive. It's like how, how does that? How does a human body have such a different reaction to such different phenomenon? That is very true. And especially when you think about olden times where they were just, they had no antibiotics. So they were just, yeah, they were just fighting rashes and probably blaming witches, but they were fighting them just, you know what? It has to pass or else you're dead. Use this root. Yeah. Use this root. (laughs) And that somehow works. Right. And you're a witch. Oh, hello everybody. Speaking of witches, welcome to the Gems of History podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Shop. Evan Roosh is here. Ooh. He's a witch. not spooky season yet, but we're still talking about it's almost about witches. Season. I can't believe it's almost spooky season. Can't believe we're already at the end of August. Can't believe we're almost at year th- end of year three. I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> it's always margarine. I've never <laughs> been more exposed to this product ever since my fiance and I moved in. Also, really <laughs> now it's just only thing that's there. You see that yellow tub, and you know, or it's one of those things where, like, I lived by myself for quite a while. Before she moved in, <laughs> she moved in. It's like, you live differently now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's just small things like the butter is different now. It's like, okay, that doesn't make any difference in my life at all. But you, for the first like four months, you're just like, where is the butter? I can't find anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't find anything in this. It's amazing home. what organization does to us. <laughs> right. It makes us not be able to find anything and to... <laughs> Now I just leave my golf clubs in the middle of the <laughs> recording studio so I know where they are. But Evan, how are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. It's uh it's it's hot. I, I didn't, didn't want to talk about the weather, but it's hot. It's about to be real hot. Yeah. And I I mentioned this to you before, but <laughs> since I have a rash from my deodorant and it's about to be really hot and I can't wear deodorant until the rash goes away. Gonna be a stinky boy. You're gonna have some uh, some stink on you. Yeah. So whoever I have to play volleyball with on Thursday, oh maybe I'll just God. knock everyone out and we win automatically. <laughs> but yeah, that's me. But <laughs> that's yeah, me. But you're good and you're going out of town this weekend, huh? Yeah, going up to the 
land of a bunch of ponds, Minnesota. Yeah, the, what is it? The land of ten thousand lakes. You would not believe how mad people from Minnesota get when you insult their lakes. It's probably the same comparable to when someone says something about Wisconsin cheese or something like that. I, f- I feel for like the Packers, but it's just very funny. Be like, actually, and they're just with no context either. You know what? Actually, I think most of your lakes are ponds, and they get so <laughs> defensive about it. It's just like, walk up to a random guy at a restaurant and say that, and then walk away straight faced. Yeah, <laughs> he might come steal your food. And I never left that restaurant. I never left that restaurant. <laughs> well, don't do that because we yeah. need you here. Yeah, because we got to talk about super fun and happy things like when the World Trade Centers got bombed. Yeah, it was act one of a three-act play by terrorism. It's Yeah, it's not a fun play to watch either. <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, I guess for the people on one side, it was probably exciting to see, but... Yeah, it's probably, uh, if this was made into a movie, one side's cheering, one side is like, damn, that was kind of messed up of them to do. Yeah. See Oppenheimer. <laughs> it's also ironic that this is coming out literally, it'll be two weeks to the day before yeah. September 11th. The, uh, anniversary and yeah i i think this is a good one to talk about though because i mean i knew that this happened mm-hmm. didn't know a lot of the details behind it but it is kind of crazy that this was a couple steps away from actually doing tremendous damage yeah and not that it didn't mm-hmm. but it could have been so much worse oh it could have been much more devastating and it's very interesting because like you mentioned I knew that it happened, but I had no idea what it was, like right. what the magnitude of it, like a six story, six stories of the entire World Trade Center was just gone. Yeah. Obliterated. For there to be, not minimizing the amount of casualties, but mm-hmm. for, for the, the casualty numbers to be so small in relation to what they could have been is pretty astounding. And it's obviously sad whenever there's a loss of life, but... F- considering it could have been like thousands had this gone right yeah we we got off pretty lucky with the fact that these terrorists were kind of bumbling idiots for half the time so yeah honestly 100 percent true and also the difference in coverage or i guess how this event really isn't embroiled into this nation's psyche as 9-11 is right that that was the most interesting part of it like if you were alive at the time you of course know about this event but i knew again like i knew as a vocab term i honestly think part of the reason is just like the physicality of it is the fact that this happened underground most of the people didn't see it Mm -hmm. so the fact that the two towers are now gone because of the one event is it's just so much easier to see remembrance of it that way right this one it literally was an underground 9-11 was probably the most videotaped day in u.s history even today i'd imagine but yeah it's definitely interesting to note the difference of historical impact and also just like 9-11 for the last 20 years ever since it's happened has just been such a recurring thing that you remember like that's just the day is 9-11 yeah you can't tell me like what day this happened on 
just from the top of your memory. Exactly. Like, we know. We don't get documentaries co- like on 24-hour cycles right. when this event happened. Mm-hmm. Oh, but 9-11, we do. And for good reason, obviously. Right. But yeah, this yeah. this is definitely one that shouldn't be forgotten either. Mm-hmm. And thank you to Jeff from the Patreon for suggesting that we do this topic. This is our listener episode for August. And I think it, it was a very good choice by everyone on the poll to pick this one for it. It's It's, as I mentioned, timely because as we're coming up on the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, it's a good one to get into people's minds to remind them that there was something that happened before this, that kind of set the the stones in place for yeah. 9-11 to be what it was. 100%. All right. I guess we should uh, tell the people what happened. huh? We should dive right in. All right. So for those of you that don't know, on February 26th, 1993, at around 12.17 or 12.18 p.m., a massive explosion shook Lower Manhattan. Not long after the blast occurred, smoke began to fill the stairwells of Tower One, one half of the infamous World Trade Centers in New York. The tens of thousands of people working in the building began to file out of the building as quickly as they could, but the explosion had left the elevators out of commission. This meant that everyone had to take the stairs, and in a tower with over 100 floors, people were struggling to make it to the bottom amidst the smoke. Now, to most, it was simply a transformer explosion or perhaps a fire in the sublevels of the building. After all, these buildings were built to withstand hurricane-level storms and even the impact of a fully-fueled Boeing 707 jet, so there was really nothing to worry about in the minds of a lot of these people. But regardless, the FBI was quickly notified about the incident and began to look into what may have happened, and it quickly became apparent from the amount of police chatter that there was something bigger than a simple fire going on beneath the World Trade Center. Yeah, I mean, uh, just look at the pictures of the immediate after effect of the bomb, and it's almost immediately apparent that, yeah, this isn't just an accident. Like this is something much more calculated and much more, much more devastating. It looks like a disaster set from a, a movie, like Straight a, an of, Avengers destroyed town. Right, like the Hulk just went through. Exactly. Like it's all rubble. Exactly. Uh, I should, before we get too far, I should mention for sources for this, I just, there's a lot of Google sources from FBI, Department of Justice, stuff like that, that you can use online. But those really don't get into detailed summaries. Uh, the best source that I think I found was an old episode of the FBI Files that's on YouTube in full. It go- it was aired in, I believe, 99 or 2000. And it goes through all of the investigation and all of the major players. stuff. It has some of the original footage, not a lot of it. They recreated a lot of it, but goes through a lot of the major players and stuff and is very good. And then I also used a chapter from a book called Toxic Terror, which I will talk about a little later. But both of the sources that I used came out before 2001. So it, it's very eerie watching the one and then reading the other. And yep. they talk about the World Trade Center's still being a, a, a current thing right so it's it's very eerie at the start of the fbi files episode when he says these buildings are built to withstand the a fully fueled jet flying oh into yeah that's and right th- all the people in the comments are like gosh it's it's so eerie hearing them say something like that knowing i remember hearing that line when i listened to the <laughs> listened to the audio of that and being like did they mean to do that 
And now, no, they did not mean I, to do that. No, exactly. <laughs> I had to look it up because I believe that was because it was the first season of FBI Files was mm-hmm. when that episode aired. And it was the last episode of the first season, which I'm almost positive was the end of 1999 when it released. So, Eesh. yeah, it was it's a weird timing on them covering it. And then also what happened right away after pretty much. Right, right. So after the FBI was notified, it didn't take long for the injuries to begin to stack up. More and more people flooded out of the building covered in soot and struggling from smoke inhalation and other injuries. The Vista Hotel, which sat between the two World Trade Center towers, also suffered extensive damage. At the same time, all available local agents were scouring the scene of the explosion in an attempt to figure out what the source of the destruction was. FBI, ATF, and local NYPD bomb squad agents all worked together at the scene while they waited for nearly 200 more to be flown in to help. Investigators quickly realized what the true extent of the damage was. Whatever had happened to cause the explosion had left a crater 100 feet wide and 200 feet long and seven stories deep. But the main priority of the original investigation was to find any survivors. And to their shock and relief, they were able to pull some of the people out of the rubble still alive. Thermal cameras were even brought in to aid in the search in the hopes that they may be able to find more people alive. But the good news only lasted for so long. Discovery started to become more and more gruesome and disheartening. One after another, fatalities were counted. John DiGiovanni, a 45-year-old sales manager for Kerr Chemicals. Robert Kirkpatrick, a 61-year-old structural maintenance supervisor planning to retire in November. Stephen Knapp, a 47-year-old chief maintenance supervisor. William Mako, a 57-year-old assistant mechanical supervisor. Wilfredo Mercado, a 37-year-old part-time security guard who is receiving food deliveries, who was crushed under 12 feet of concrete. And Monica Rodriguez-Smith, a 35-year-old secretary who is coming in for her last day of work before maternity leave, her unborn child being the seventh and final fatality from the attack. By the end, more than 1,000 people were injured and nearly 50,000 people were evacuated from the complex in a little more than four hours. Yeah, when you go through the names, I think the thing that really pops out to me is, I mean, just what their job titles were. Maintenance, salesperson. Yeah. Like, not one involved in anything to do with uh, what these terrorists were trying to really target. Like, they weren't military. No. You know, they weren't like politicians. They were people going to a job. Yeah, pretty much four out of the six of them were maintenance people and then a secretary and a part-time security guard who is just there working to take deliveries. To pay bills. Exactly. They were there to pay some bills. It's it's also interesting to me, a lot of the sources, they'll say there are six casualties and they'll say that uh, Maria was pregnant, but they won't count the the child as a casualty they'll just put it as like and her child they won't say like that's the seventh so i i don't know why a lot of sources don't but i figured it was important to count them as another a life that was taken before it had its chance right but yeah it's uh like 300 million dollars worth of damage close to 500 million on some estimates yeah it's a it's an amazingly huge disaster. Yes, yes. Hundreds of cars had been demolished, and four to 6,000 tons of rubble filled the bottom of the crater. 
In the words of one FBI agent present at the time, the rubble sat around the pillars at the bottom like sand around a straw. If the rubble would be moved, the little stability holding up the Vista Hotel would be gone. Crews spent hours reinforcing the remains of the parking structure so that interagency crews could safely inspect the damage. Yeah, they literally had to dedicate hours and days of construction crews just to keep the thing upright, just to conduct an investigation. And this is just like to the toll of the damage. This is where I say it could have been so much worse. If one or more of those, like if one or even two of those pillars didn't stand up, Mm -hmm. they, the building could have collapsed. Yeah. We're talking about more deaths. Exactly. There's just a pit below it. Right. Something's got to go there. Yeah. Yeah. Like seven, like again, put in perspective, seven stories. Yeah. Six to seven stories. Like four beneath where the bomb went off, and then like two to three up above it. Yeah, like so, how did that not fall? It's like it's truly astounding that this didn't go way worse. After crews reinforced the structure, power was quickly restored, with the lights of the tower being turned on that same night to represent resilience in the face of danger. By the next morning, the crew expanded their search from only looking for survivors to also trying to find evidence. However, all of the agents were instructed not to move anything in case it could compromise the stability of any of the structures. After a few hours, crews began moving into the blast area nearer to the central point of the blast, with people reporting the sounds of ticking coming from some of the cars whose turn signals had flipped on and hadn't turned off. That's so freaky. I can't imagine walking down, conducting the investigation, or even trying to keep the thing upright if you're part of the crew and you just hear Especially when a bomb just went off and you, yeah. hear, you hear ticking. You're like, is there another one? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's so eerie. Yeah. Cause everything else, you, all you hear is like the sewage pipes leaking and like a bunch of ambient noise. Oh, oh my gosh. I can't. It's literally out of a horror movie. I honest to goodness could not imagine. Evidence collecting was a tedious and slow process. Amidst the apocalyptic remains of the parking garage, investigators had to meticulously swab the remains of cars to find clues, while others panned and sifted through rubble to try and find any answers. At the same time, the media took the story and ran with it, pushing the agenda of fear that would follow this event. A $200,000 bounty was placed on finding the culprits for the bombing almost immediately, which was the biggest bounty ever placed in New York City. Which is saying something. That city's been a long, yeah. been around for a very long time. Has had some things happen. Two and two hundred thousand dollars in ninety three, like thirty years ago. That's it's over a million a, now. Yeah, it's got to be sure. over a million now. I would think. By Saturday morning, the FBI was already established with a dedicated command post, with every available agent reporting to help. Hundreds of reports immediately came flooding in, most of which were suspicious neighbors, but each lead needed a follow-up in hopes that one of them would yield a result. But despite all of these tips, a break did come in the case pretty quickly, as investigation teams found a twisted piece of steel amongst the rubble near ground zero of the explosion. Going against the protocol, the team took the evidence out of the site and examined it immediately. As if fate was on their side, the remnants of what was once a car had a still recognizable VIN number etched onto it, allowing the FBI to search through their databases to find out who that car belonged to. That is crazy. Out of all the things, like, that's the car. Yeah. So if, if you don't know what a VIN number, it's a vehicle identification number. It just basically is a fingerprint for who the car belongs to, and it's an easy way for 
government agents to track like if a car's stolen or something like that. So to have this number gave them pretty much everything that they needed to figure out where this car came from. Right. And I mean, the terrorists, the people that did the bombing, like there's no way they expected for the VIN number to stay. Like it blew up seven stories. And yeah. The VIN number right. is still there. Exactly. But I think it, it's ironic because two years later when Timothy McVeigh would bomb the Mira building, mm-hmm. The re- I'm pretty sure the reason that he got caught is because the axle of the van that he yep. used flew off and the VIN number was still on that tr- to track. Shout so- out cow, cow parts. Shout out, <laughs> moo. Shout out car parts. I guess it's very, very important to label your different, different uh, technologies they got yeah, going right. on. It's not just gun identification, it's tires. So after running the number, it was found that the vehicle number matched a van that was rented from a leasing company known as DIB Leasing, which was based in New Jersey. So local New Jersey FBI agents quickly reported to the business and learned that the number belonged to a Ford Econoline van that was reported stolen the day before the attack. The man who had rented the car out was a 25-year-old immigrant of Palestinian descent named Mohammed Salome. Salome aligned himself with a Muslim fundamentalist named El Said Nosser, who had been implicated in the assassination of an Israeli nationalist named Mayor Kahan. According to the manager of the leasing company, Salome had returned to try and get his $400 deposit back on the van multiple times, so the FBI figured they should put an agent undercover behind the desk of DIB Leasing to talk to Salome when he came in again. To get more information on Salome, the agent asked for more paperwork to work through the stolen van story to get him his deposit back. After receiving the deposit back, Salome was ambushed outside of the leasing agency by agents who had been listening to his conversation with the agent posing as an employee. I think that's the coolest part, the agent posing as an employee. He had a full conversation with the man. Yeah. Like, kept him speaking, kept him going, had that full conversation, gave him $400 for a person that just is suspected of blowing up and killing several people. He kind of played it perfectly. Yeah, Like, you can't just, as soon as he starts talking, be like, murderer, get him. He had such a good way to get information from him. Right. Because, like, the van was reported stolen. I need to see, like, ID from you. I need to know, like, what the story was. I need the police report. Right. Like, all this stuff, so... Yeah, and then they got him right away. <laughs> That's for it's like one of my most illogical fears. I'll just walk out of the store one day, and all of a sudden, just big vans come out just get with, with the, the FBI or SWAT team. Like I'm holding McFlurry or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like what is going on? What did I do? <laughs> Less than one week after the bombing, the FBI already had one of their suspects in custody. According to John V. Paracini in the book Toxic Terror, Assessing Terrorist Use of Chemical and Biological Weapons, Salome was found to be quite a quote-unquote bumbler. A quote from his chapter in the book reads, Despite the quote-unquote evil terrorist profile that government prosecutors laid out for the jury, Salome was a pathetic figure. The eldest of a family of 11, he struggled to achieve mediocrity in life. End quote. (sighs) 11 that's a big family that is a lot of kids but yeah this guy as we'll see going forward he's not a pro no (laughs) this one is definitely he was again keep in mind he was trying so desperately to get 400 bucks back yeah and the reason that he after he just bombed 
<laughs> or but the reason allegedly he needed it is so funny. We'll talk about it at the end, but uh, this, yeah, this guy just, he needed a helping hand and he got the wrong one. <laughs> he was so psyched probably walking out like, that worked. I cannot believe it. After Nasser was arrested following the assassination of Kahan, Salome tried to free him, but ultimately ended up falling in with a different crew of guys with which he would commit the World Trade Center bombing. So in other words, Salome was a born follower for whoever would lead the charge against American ideals. He didn't really care who it was as long as they were on his side. Mm -hmm. And it's very funny that this like political dissident who just tried to assassinate a public figure went to jail and he's like, I know how to get him out of there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the FBI got a warrant to search Salome's old residence where he had actually moved out of. However, they did find some of his old belongings, which included bank records, addresses, and phone numbers that they could then track to follow any other suspicious persons. Take it with you. <laughs> right. They left a pot of gold for investigators. <laughs> if you know you're planning to bomb one of the most public places in America. The literal symbol of commerce in a nation. You should probably take all your confidential contacts with you. Right. And not keep the business cards in your wallet. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> Shortly after this, investigators also received a call from the manager of a place known as Space Station Storage Facilities in New Jersey, who relayed to them that the owners who rented Unit 4344 had multiple shipments from chemical companies shortly before the World Trade Center bombing, which was confirmed by FBI agents who went to check out the unit. Yeah, all of this, I guess I don't want to spoil it, but basically all of their bomb making things were so easily traceable like yeah. you just got them from companies and the, the owner of this place was he he identified salome immediately because mm -hmm. he's like nobody else comes and goes from a storage unit as much as these guys did oh yeah they check in all the time and the storage unit too also had great security for 1993 exactly i mean at the time, they had to punch in a code to get in and out of the... F so they had a log mm -hmm. of like every coming and going of these guys. And there was also a camera. So after they punched in that code, a camera would show who was actually yeah, walking in. Exactly. Like, you can't get past it. Also inside the facility, besides the chemical compounds, were receipts and more, fo more phone numbers. But as I just mentioned, most important was that log of the unit owner's comings and goings. The FBI then checked the phone records for the payphone outside of the storage facility and found calls that were being made to another one of their suspects, a man named Nadal Ayad. Ayad was the most educated member of the group. He was born in Kuwait and shortly after becoming a U.S. citizen. He studied and graduated from Rutgers University and got a job as a chemical engineer at a company called Allied Chemical. But the FBI was suspicious of him. Well, it's just like, of course he does have a job. Right. Allied chemical. It, it works for what you need it for. Right. I also just like why this guy gets so caught up in this too with what is essentially a group of misfits. And he's yeah. got such a good life. Like he just settled yeah. down. His wife is pregnant with their first child. He just throws all that away. Yeah. Throws it all away for, uh, I mean, what? Eventually lands him in Guantanamo Bay. Exactly. <laughs> the FBI was suspicious of Ayad after his name was found in Salome's wallet. 
Also, within a week of Salome's arrest, Ayad had placed an order for more chemicals that could be used for bomb making. Agents obtained a warrant for his arrest, and on March 10th, the FBI arrested Ayad and searched his house and office. They confiscated his work computer and his company phone records, and the FBI was able to use this to restore an erased file on his computer, which claimed responsibility for the World Trade Center bombing, which was similar to a letter that had made its way to the New York Times four days after the bombing had taken place. That's one of the things that's extremely interesting about post-bombing, like immediately after they set up like a tip line. A lot of different groups came forward to claim responsibility for this bombing. None of them were real until they find this letter. The letter gets entered and it's like, okay, we actually have something legit here. Exactly. But it's very like the dynamic. You see a bombing on TV and you're like, I did that. Well, it's the same thing when we covered the Yorkshire Ripper. There was that one right. random guy who sent him a, a voice recording saying it was me. Right. Yeah. I mean, with the Zodiac, like all serial killers, basically, yeah. they typically have someone try to take their fame. In this case, it doesn't really hinder the investigation at all because they're able to follow the leads pretty easily. Right. But in cases like that, they're hurt they're hurting innocent people like right. the yorkshire ripper was able to go for another like two years because people were chasing their tail so fast yeah it's it's pretty insane that people they just want their moment of fame i guess right like you're not helping no not at all but it's also crazy that they arrested him on march 10th less than two weeks after the bombing had taken place that's how fast the turnaround is on catching mm-hmm. some of these guys yeah According to the letters that they found, the group worked under the name of the quote-unquote Liberation Army and were targeting the American people, not significant landmarks, for their attacks. The letter read, in part, quote, The American people are responsible for the actions of their government, and they must question all of the crimes that their government is committing against other people, or they, Americans, will be the targets of our operations. End quote. Which is a very interesting way to justify bombing a to-be mother and maintenance workers. <laughs> part-time security guard. And part-time yeah. security guard and salesman. I'm sure that those six people and an unborn child are really going to shift the tides of American, public po- or American foreign policy. <laughs> right. And I do truly recommend, uh, if you haven't already, go back and listen to our Iranian Revolution. Yeah episode because we do provide a lot of additional context as to why we got here pretty to much. this point. yeah exactly you know because uh, again like we covered in that uh that episode whenever we think about these terrorist attacks it's like what was that for right <laughs> it's like our government did do some pretty crazy things and in this case a lot of it is the fact that we're sending aid to israel who is yes. actively in palestine committing war crimes and stuff so right yeah it's it's mostly that side of it that these people get mad at but i mean they're also mad about us not stopping saddam hussein when he was going in iran and right. killing a bunch of people with chemical weapons and yeah all of that stuff comes back to bite us in the butt <laughs> Salome and Ayad, after they were arrested, stonewalled the investigators, but it didn't take long for agents to track phone records to an apartment in Jersey City owned by Salome and another man, who I believe his alias was Rashad at this point. Yep. Upon investigating the apartment, the FBI found not only all of the bomb-making materials used to create the explosive used at the World Trade Center, but also records that identified another conspirator in the plot, a man named Ramsey Yosef. But they didn't know much about him yet. 
Instead, in the workshop, the lab technicians were able to deduce that the bomb was a urea nitrate bomb, which is a powerful fertilizer-based explosive that is frequently used in the Israeli arena of war. Urea nitrate is popular since it's relatively easy to make, and it leaves very little residue after the explosion, which is kind of what they were banking on to help them not get caught. Right. When it explodes, it levels things. And you can see a lot of examples of this type of bomb going off throughout history. It's also very interesting that these people just name drop everyone that they're conspirating with. They don't have a code name. They don't have anything to cover their tracks. Well, the one did, but... And they don't try and get rid of any of it. Like No, none. They all had plans to leave the country after the bombing. Why would you not just burn all of that stuff before you left the apartment and Mm -hmm. then go do it? Right. It's it's when I that's what I mean when I say these guys are the misfit squad. <laughs> They're not very organized. Well, I guess it's easy with 20 years of hindsight for us in the basement to be <laughs> like get away from where you made the bomb. But right. that's that's just our non-professional opinion. But Yosef does the same stuff later on yeah. in life. So it's not like he's a, he's doesn't learn from his mistakes. Right. After tracing more phone records and following up more leads, the FBI was able to get a lead on another member of the crew responsible for the bombing on February 26th. Many reported seeing a distinct-looking man accompanying Yusuf and Salome, with phone records identifying that man as Mahmoud Abu Halima, an Egyptian native who had fought for the Afghan resistance against the Soviet Union. He had close ties to Nosser, as well as other controversial figures like Sheikh Abdul Rahman, who would later be arrested on conspiracy to bomb New York City landmarks. And it's kind of the, this guy's kind of a rallying point for all of the members of the quote unquote Liberation Army, because they, this is where they all knew they had a similar ideals with each other. And that's kind of how they formed. So this Abdul Rahman guy is not a not a shining light in the community. <laughs> like no. he is he is for them, but for their community, very much so. But it's it's also funny that Abu Halima was found because everyone recognized him because he had like red hair and a big nose, and they're oh. like, he looks different. Yeah, <laughs> huh? <laughs> he looks different. I think we can point him out to you. So three days after the bombing, Abu Halima had fled the United States and gone back to Egypt. However, Egyptian authorities quickly arrested Abu Halima and he was extradited back to the United States. Get back here, you. Uh, on charge, of, like they caught him for conspiring against the Egyptian president. Yeah. It's like, my man, take a month off. <laughs> Just take a, like a, a vacation. Right. Take a deep breath. Take, take a honeymoon. Yeah. Think about what you did and then stop doing it. But he got beat up by the Egyptian uh, authorities. Like right. When we got him, he was ready to talk. Oh, yeah. He got messed up pretty bad, I he, believe. And apologies if you're about to say that. Like, he had a bag on his head and his hands were cuffed. And when, we, when he was exchanged into our possession, he was literally grateful because he thought he was taking, taken out back to be shot in the head. Oof. Yeah, that's a good turn of events then. Getting put in jail, I guess, is, uh, I guess, from whatever well, way you want to look at it, maybe he would have been grateful. Right. Like the bag comes off your head and it's just a private plane. It's a guy, it's this like typical secret security guy with the coily earplug and right. all that stuff. Yeah. While in custody, Abu Halima attempted to negotiate a deal stating that Ramzi Yosef had manipulated him, but these pleas all failed. However, it seemed as though the FBI had their leading man in Ramzi Yosef. 
based on all of the testimony they had heard and how much it seemed that he had his hand in everything along the way. Yeah, he did a lot of talking after we got him in our possession. Yeah. Like, blah, 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 blah. So does Yosef once we catch him. Like, they they liked to take credit for what they did after a while. Again, not the A-Squad. No. After finding that Yosef had fled the country the night of the bombing, the FBI began to put together a profile of Yosef while their manhunt ensued. They found that he had arrived in the United States on September 1st, 1992, as a naturalized Pakistani citizen. However, Yosef arrived with an Iraqi passport and claimed to be born in Kuwait. After using more than 12 different aliases, Yosef was finally settled on identifying as Palestinian. There y'all landed. So he went through three different identity changes between the time he arrived and the time that he got caught. Well, I just had to test some out, I guess. I might as well. Yosef had attended a terrorist training camp in Afghanistan where he learned everything he knew about explosives. Uh, why do we have drones if we yeah. <laughs> They just have different Boy Scouts over there, I guess. It's, it's a lot different, yeah. They don't worry about cookie sales or helping grandma across the street. Pinewood car derbies. Yeah, or pinewood car. I, I, I don't think they did those. Do you, do you think? With the pinewood car derbies, for a little bit of context, that's why I'm laughing. I was constantly accused of cheating <laughs> in those, and still to this day, I'll get accused of cheating in those. Do you think there was one terrorist Boy Scout who was accused of cheating with oh, no. a very little thing? Oh, no. The shooting trials. Out of the, the bomb-making class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After going to the terrorist Boy Scouts, he then... Yosef then traveled as a quote-unquote professional terrorist in the name of the Islamic Jihad, finally infiltrating the United States, where he was able to charm others to join his cause and aid in his terroristic endeavors. It's a very, very, very disappointing LinkedIn title. Professional This guy's the Charles Manson of the group, though. He's like charismatic enough to Mm -hmm. be able to bring all of these nobodies these misfits as i keep calling them into this group right upon scrutinizing the passenger manifests from yosef's flight into the country from 1992 the agents discovered something else interesting another man on yosef's flight named ahmad mohammed ajaj was arrested upon arriving in the united states for presenting a fake swedish passport Buddy, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you fit the profile. I'm from Sweden. <laughs> no, a, you're not. He's wearing like the, the Swedish dress. Like, <laughs> got a bunch of freaking, chocolate. <laughs> freaking clogs on his feet. I think that's Swedish. I think so. We're, we'll say it is. Sure. And you, there goes our Swedish. They, are, they <laughs> are like our third biggest listener base, so I guess they can tell us if we're wrong. Due to suspicions, custom agents searched Ajaj's belongings and found several other passports, along with bomb manuals and bomb-making instructional videos. You gotta be kidding, dude. Like, a how-to? Like, a dummy's guide to make a bomb? (laughs) Literally. It's just... Come on, guys. This is why, like, when we get to the conspiracies about this whole thing, it's just mind-blowing to me that people thought there was some deeper meaning here it's like no these guys are just idiots who somehow stumbled their way into succeeding at something right like this one doesn't go that deep no. folks there's not too much conspiracy around it 
So while the agents originally thought that he was an unlikely conspirator with the other men, since Ajaj was in jail at the time of the bombing, it was later found that he was, in fact, keeping in contact with Yosef and the others through friends and a series of phone calls which were forwarded from third parties to the quote-unquote Liberation Army. Despite his silence, Ajaj was on the hook for the bombing as well, and he was the fourth man in the original trials for the bombing that took place in September of 1993. Six months after the bombing, the prosecution was prepared to present their case in front of a judge. The investigative teams had, by this point, taken the time to thoroughly investigate multiple crime scenes. The actual site of the bomb detonation had been done and dusted for a while, with nearly 70% of the pieces from the van recovered, which is crazy to me. If you, like, yeah. seriously, if you see the pictures, that fact that they were able to find 70% of the van. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, 70% of where it originated. Like, I do not know how bombs work, but that's very, like, how? It's a, It exploded multiple floors of a parking garage. Like, imagine yeah. that blowing a van apart. Mm. That's, they're, they're everywhere. It's crazy. Right. And keep in mind, parking garage, that's all cement. The rest of it, it's all metal beams, again, in the poor choice of words of the FBI files yeah. enough to withstand a plane filled with gas. Yeah, it's it's nuts. The investigative teams in this in this uh case did a very good job. The storage facility had been cleaned out of bomb accoutrement and the bomb factory apartment had been scoured and cleaned out along with all of its phone records. Interviews had also been done to connect missing links in the information that the investigators had. So after compiling all of their information, this is the story that was laid out in the court hearings. But before we get into the story of how it was laid out, Evan has a little information on how the people that get chosen to defend someone like this right. come it, about. It is truly crazy how it happens. It's not technically crazy, but just putting yourself in the shoes of the person like it's chosen yeah. to do this it is nuts so this it's, inf- it's well it's like um what's his face from the trials of the century we just covered i can't remember his name now uh the guy who that's literally how this show works we yeah. do all this research and do, like, the, do it and then it's out the attorney for the damned whatever whatever that guy's name was right but he just chose people that were lost cause cases but right, in right. his case he chose them for a good reason this would just suck. Right, right. So these sources come from WNYC.org. So Clarence Darrow. That was there it is. There it is. But a majority of terror suspects, they actually get funds or excuse me, they actually get funds from the government for their legal fees. Hmm. Because as you can imagine, when you're a terrorist, you do not have much money. True. In fact, and here's a quote, as a general rule, terror defendants don't have any money, so they're not in a position to retain counsel, says Ron Kuby, a longtime defense attorney who's represented several terror suspects in the Southern District of New York over the past 30 years. So you don't have any cash to you. I guess that makes sense then. Right. Plus, you want to get a good trial. Like you want to make sure that first of all, these guys get convicted. That's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. But second of all, you also want to get all of the information that you can before you send them away. So exactly. And to that point, these cases are extremely expensive, both for the prosecution and the defense, because for a case to be like a terrorist case, it has to be extremely public. So that means there's plenty of documents on it. 
and it typically involves hundreds of thousands of documents, as is the case with the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. Yeah. Which means hundreds of thousands of documents by both sides need to be overlooked and used for the case, which is nuts. Yeah, that's why the trial takes six months. Right. <laughs> like it's clear cut that they're guilty, but... Yep. And the default provider of appointed counsel is the Federal Defenders of New York. Federal Defenders are assigned randomly to terror cases when they're on a duty day, which are days when they are assigned to pick up any client whose case ends up in court. So, to represent a alleged terrorist is a completely random draw of the hat. (laughs) That is kind of wild. And when the terror suspect shows up for the first court appearance, the federal defender on duty gets assigned to that case. So you don't really have a lot of prep work. Hey, and Terry, guess what? You get to defend the World Trade Center bombers. Oh, that's so tough. That's so tough. And if there's any conflict of interest, let's say that defense attorney, they had a relative involved in the bombing, then they would be taking off the case. Sure. And then we go to the Criminal Justice Act panel, which again, is completely random. Ah, that, that is wild. But, uh, and then just to describe one occurrence of what it's like to actually be representing someone who is a uh, alleged terrorist, Robert Precht, who represented a terrorist uh, in a embassy bombing, not in this. Or excuse me, excuse me. Robert Precht was one of the defense attorneys for one of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing suspects. Okay. And I'm going to read an interaction between him and a random person on the subway. I'm going to do a southern accent. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Why not? He's from New York. He's from New York, but he's southern. You're one of the lawyers for the Arabs, aren't you? Yes, I am. Well, how are you going to feel when you get these murderers free and they go out and commit another crime and they kill more people? And at that point, Precht about to get like phys- like physically or excuse me face physical violence runs off the subway Jeez. the man behind him is sprinting after him still screaming at him and this was a relatively frequent experience for these yeah. lawyers who again random random like <laughs> and it reminds me of the town executioners back in the day like they did yeah. a public service but people hated them for it oh yeah so it's kind of the same thing yeah and it's also i mean in this case of course these men were very guilty of it but it's an impossible case to win. yeah it's exactly. a, to be on the defense of it but i thought i'd just interject there before we get oh, to the yeah. rest of it just like what it's like to be a defense attorney. That's fascinating. And how it happens. Yeah. I've never thought about that before because these people, I mean, the terrorists, like we mentioned, they have no money. No. But we still have to pay for their legal fees, technically. Right. I mean, one of them scrounged for $400 deposit back. Right. So that he could get out of the country. So. $400 brought one, like the first ever major terrorist incident to its knees. But yeah, exactly. And the VIN number. So, based on the court hearings in September of 1993, here is how the entire planning and execution of the bombing of the World Trade Centers went down based on evidence, based on all of the documents and interviews and witness testimonies in the courtroom. The conspiracy began shortly after Yosef arrived in the United States in November of 1992. 
He moved in with Salome not long after, and the two became close friends. It was founded on a mutual hatred of Israel and a vision of disrupting American aid. Man, did they just need like an Xbox? Yeah, right. this <laughs> they, is this. Do you imagine the scene from Step Brothers, except instead yeah. of them saying, "Do you want to go do karate in the garage? Like, <laughs> do you want to go bomb the World Trade Center? Yeah, you want to make a bomb in the garage and not clean it up." However, as mentioned earlier, Salome was also just a perfect stooge for Yosef to use. The two men decided that in order to maximize casualties, they should really hit the World Trade Centers. But they weren't planning on hitting the World Trade Center building itself, rather the parking structure beneath it, because this would, in their minds, allow them to cripple the support for the towers and would knock them down. Yeah, not engineers. <laughs> no, well, they weren't that far off, though. Like It could have potentially worked they were on to something like all joking aside they were definitely onto yeah something, scarily close to yes. like actually making something like that happen i don't know if it would have knocked the buildings down but it definitely would have done it would have collapsed the vista hotel at least so <sighs> here's a new game we'll play on the gems of history podcast that jacob can cut if he deems so which would be more traumatic imagery of one of the towers slumping over like that Ooh. and running into the other one or what we currently have. Probably, honestly, if you, if you saw the other one just fall into the one. Like a slow, yeah. slow Well, because you imagine that too. That's falling sideways. That's going into like oh, into the city. Yeah. That's not just going straight down. So that's way worse. Do you think the second one would catch it? No. No? Okay. <laughs> no, I don't think so. All right, and that's everyone's least favorite game show. Do, 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 I mean, do, these do, things do, can do, sway do. quite a bit in the wind, but I don't think they can sway enough to support another building. Probably of not. Of the same size. Probably not, no. Salome and Yosef put their plan into action pretty quickly. Receipts show that in November, Yosef used an alias to order chemicals and continued to use his time to refine the bomb. The chemicals were then delivered to space station storage, where Salome and Yosef used aliases to sign for them to ensure that no paper trail would be left. In addition, Nadal Ayad was, used to, was able to use his position as a chemical engineer to procure more chemical ingredients. Some of the suppliers did refuse to sell to the men since they attempted to pay in cash, and they were sending the chemicals to a storage park, and because they were just overall super suspicious. <laughs> Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> it's just how much more odd could it be? Yeah, saying to a storage unit is very wild. When like, you are, and then you pull up with your truck to deliver it, and you open the garage door, and there's already just barrels of other chemicals in there. Well, yeah, they had two storage units yeah. for all of their bomb making needs. It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of storage. So it's gonna be end up being like almost fifteen hundred pounds worth of stuff. So yeah, what do you? After they're convicted, what do you think they do with all that? It's like, do we just put it into evidence, all very yeah, separated guess. from yeah. each other and no smoking allowed? And then give it back to the chemical companies, I guess? Like if, if yeah, I, I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so that's where my mind's at today, random thoughts. At the same time, Salome was more than willing to do whatever the men needed him to do. He got a driver's license, he received some of the chemical shipments, and he opened some new bank accounts. As the chemicals began to come in, Yosef used his explosives training from Afghanistan to begin mixing at least 13 different chemicals to create a 1,200 to 1,500-pound bomb. Yosef claimed that he was responsible for 90% of the know-how on how to make the bomb, but he wouldn't admit that he still needed help from his friend in jail, Ajaj. 
After all, Ajaj had been arrested with the bomb-making manuals in his luggage at the airport, which Yosef wanted. Yeah. <laughs> the men kept in contact in a very roundabout way. Yosef would call a friend of his at a burger stand in Dallas, who would then relay the message to Ajaj in prison while Yosef waited on the other line, and then the three would be patched in together to discuss the bomb's construction. And slowly but surely, the plan came together, and the men were determined to see it through. And that this in the uh, FBI files, this is the part where they really talk about like these guys would have done whatever it took to make sure that this plan succeeded unless they got caught. And this like patching in to a prison <laughs> to get another terrorist in contact with him was it made it so much harder for investigators to be able to track like who he was talking to pretty much. Right. That's I mean, especially for the time, the technology pretty impressive that they yeah. thought to do that it's a conference call with the guy it's in a prison. conference call this is this is before teams yeah exactly <laughs> this is before zoom yeah right plans were set back for a time though after salome lost control of a car that he and yosef were traveling in and he sent yosef to the hospital for a week oh gosh that's the bomb guy <laughs> it's, always, it's always salome that's doing some sort of fucked up shit <laughs> <laughs> oh salome not again not again while in the hospital, though, Yosef called chemical companies to attempt to place more orders. Uh, yep, that's about right. <laughs> Using a hospital phone to call for bomb materials yeah. is just a very big... <laughs> this guy's got the biggest balls in the world. Would you like to accept a collect call from St. <laughs> Luke's Hospital? <laughs> I was, was going to say Children's Hospital. Yes, hello. <laughs> what, what would, you, would you like to place an order? Um, can I get a, I'm not going to do an accent. <laughs> Probably a good call. Um, can I get a number three with a side of a little extra nitrate? Yeah. Um, might I ask where you're calling from? Um, I'd rather not disclose that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dr. Al Albertson, we need you online too. What was that? You hear the heart rate monitor start going faster. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, man. So while Yosef was in the hospital, Salome, Abu Halima, and Ayad created a prototype of their bomb in the Pennsylvania woods to test out their mixture. It did work, but it was much weaker than they expected. So in the coming days, Ayad attempted to procure compressed hydrogen gas, which was a common chemical in Middle Eastern bombs, which would make the bomb more powerful. However, he had trouble finding someone to sell it to him. After... All of the things that they had ordered, I don't blame chemical companies for starting to look a little weird at these guys. Yeah, I'm sure chemical companies are all for, I don't know, free and U.S., do whatever you want, but you can kind of get the telling tales here. And you would, I would think by this point, his employers are kind of seeing that he's ordering a bunch of chemicals on company scratch, yeah. <laughs> and they're just like, buddy, what are you doing? Hey, it's like a doctor that just keeps on ordering like painkillers yeah it's it's the boss from office space coming in hey so uh yeah gonna need to know what you're doing with all these chemicals <laughs> it's just, on the company like it, come on it's it's just incredible to me in the meantime salome and ayad took a rented car to the world trade center parking garage where ayad made a rough sketch of the floor plans Four days before the bombing, Yosef's friend from Dallas, whose name was Ishmael, joined the, joined the rest of the crew in New Jersey to help finish the bomb. He would also be the one to drive the van into the World Trade Center. 
On February 23rd, three days before the bombing, Salome rented a 10-foot yellow Ford Econoline van from DIB Leasing with a $400 cash deposit. With the bomb nearly complete, the men took another recon mission to the parking garage, this time with Ishmael and Yosef along. Ayad discussed with Yosef where the best spot to place the bomb would be, deciding on the B2 level of the parking structure. Ayad was finally able to find the compressed hydrogen that they needed, having three large tanks delivered to space station storage the next day. On February 25th, the day before, the men mixed the chemicals carefully at their apartment to create nitroglycerin. The men then combined several gallons of nitric acid with roughly 1,200 pounds of urea crystals to create in large trash cans to basically create this gelatin mixture. That had to be the worst smelling apartment. Just a bunch of chemicals. Just a ton of chemicals. And like, do you eat there? No, <laughs> they, like, they, they there's just no ran, way, right? That was just used for bomb making. This yeah. is our chemical apartment. Yes, exactly. After they had packed all of the large trash cans into the van, they then placed the nitroglycerin between them, threading four long fuses through surgical tubing to reduce any release of smoke and ensure a slow enough burn to allow the men to escape. Blasting caps and boxes of gunpowder were then inserted into each of the containers and attached to the fuses, with the only thing missing being the compressed hydrogen. All of the men then traveled to the storage unit and loaded the hydrogen carefully into the van, ensuring that the bomb would be much more powerful than original. Than originally thought. (laughs) Yosef and Ishmael then drove the van from New Jersey to a hotel in Manhattan, where they parked it out back and out of sight. At 10 that same evening, Salome relayed to the New Jersey police that the van that he was renting had been stolen, stating he had parked it at a grocery store and came out to find it gone. Knowing he would need the police report to get his deposit back, he then met with the police later that day. It was later found that Salome had bought a child's airline ticket to get out of the country because he couldn't afford an adult ticket, and that was why he needed his $400 deposit back to upgrade to an adult fare to leave the country. Bro, no one can spot him the cash. Nope. <laughs> just no one could spot him the money to get him out. This is what I mean when he's just a stooge. Right. Nobody cares about him at the end. He's a, probably the fall guy, to he, be oh, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. 100%. But they left all of the in- incriminating evidence with him. With, with their names. <laughs> with, with the guy that they already planned to get rid of, probably. Yeah. Since the van was reported stolen by Salome, everything was in place, and Ishmael and Yosef drove the van into the B2 section of the parking lot, followed by the other men in a rented red Corsica. They parked the van in the reserved Port Authority parking spot and used a cigarette lighter to light the fuse, and then rushed to the Corsica and drove away out of the parking structure. The men escaped the parking garage only seconds before the bomb went off, with its four fuses ensuring that one of them would ignite and explode the bomb. The explosion hit the wall of the tower at around 12.17 or 12.18 p.m. on February 26th, destroying everything around it. Like leaving for your lunch break, or like coming home from a lunch break, and going back into the Trade Center, and your entire world gets turned upside down. Yeah. Crazy. It's... Seeing the pictures of people coming out, yeah, just how covered in soot and stuff they are, even when they're coming from like the twentieth floor, I am amazed that it was only six casualties. Well, seven casualties. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and like if a fire 
broke out. People had to climb using the stairs. Yeah. Like they had to use the stairs to get out. Like All the, nothing and, else is working. And there's people trapped in 45 out of the like hundred elevators that are in the building. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy that it was as minimal as it was. Yeah. Like Luckily. If, if those <laughs> elevators, like if a cable breaks loose, yeah. like there's even more deaths. After the bomb exploded, Yosef and Ishmael both left the country pretty much immediately, with Yosef heading to Pakistan and Ishmael headed to Jordan. A few days later, Abu Halima left as well, and we already kind of talked about how he went to Egypt and then got sent back. Without the investigators finding the VIN number of the van so quickly, Salome likely would have escaped next. Over the course of the six-month trial recounting these events, with receipts and phone records laying out the story one step at a time, the jury heard from 206 witnesses and reviewed some 10,000 pages of testimony. 206 witnesses? Yep. 200 and that's... Wow. <laughs> I mean, you have to think about the guys attending the parking structure. Yeah. You have to think of like the p- first responders to the scene. You have to think of the people that have already extradited these guys back. You, a lot of people had to say what they had to say. So, Oh, especially with this case, too. Yeah. In February of 1994, a year after the bombing, the jury took only three days to reach their conclusions. Guilty on 39 separate counts. Three months later, on May 24th, Judge Kevin Duffy sentenced each of the men to a one-year sentence for each year of the lives of the victims that they had killed, coming to a total of 240 years with no possibility for parole. This was a huge success. However, Yosef and Ishmael were still fugitives at this point. Oh, for each year of the lives. I was like, yes. that doesn't add so you add up all the lives of the people it was the way they worded it was a year for the lives that the people didn't get to live or something like that something along those lines but whatever it was added up to 240 years right yeah that just took my slow brain yeah it's it's a weird it is kind of a weird way to sentence instead of just saying life without parole or like six life sentences right yeah After this conviction, during their manhunt, agents found that Yosef had been involved in plots to blow up 12 United and Delta airliners en route between the United States and Asia within a short time. Now, luckily, he didn't get to all 12 of those, but on December 4th, 1994, Yosef and his accomplices abroad placed a bomb on a Philippine Airlines flight en route to Tokyo and killed a Japanese businessman. On January 6th, 1995, Yosef and two of his accomplices were mixing chemicals in an apartment in Manila when a fire broke out, forcing the men to flee into the street. Yosef was concerned about a laptop that he had left inside, so he sent one of the other men back in to go retrieve it. When the Philippine police arrived, they arrested the man who had retrieved the laptop and recovered the laptop itself, which detailed Yosef's plans to make bombs and bomb multiple airlines. I, it's hilarious to me how many of these guys he gets to just do his bidding without asking. He's the most charismatic man, I guess, in I, the industry. I guess. like His ego is just massive at this point. Oh, for sure. And again, we're getting to, like, they're starting to target airlines. Yeah. I mean, the Unabomber they're also. Going, yeah, they're going full Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, they, they definitely took a page out of his playbook. Yeah, definitely. After this confiscation of the laptop, Yosef did manage to escape the police and traveled to Pakistan. In Pakistan, nearly two years after the World Trade Center bombing, Yosef's neighbors tipped off the police, who apprehended Ramzi Yosef on February 8, 1995. 
After being tried and convicted of the of the after being tried and convicted of the Manila flight bombing in September of the following year, Yosef was sent back to the United States to stand trial for his part in the World Trade Center bombings. What a crazy travel itinerary. It's like I have court here for when I bombed there. I have court here when I did a bomb there. Let's talk about being busy. He's booked. Yeah, definitely. It, he's going to be booked. Ayo. The final arrest took place in June of 1995 when Ishmael was found and arrested in Jordan and returned to the United States to stand trial with Yosef. Both of the men were found guilty and sentenced to life in prison, with Yosef being given solitary confinement for the rest of his days. Deserved it. Earned. He definitely definitely does deserve it, but oh, I cannot imagine solitary for the rest of my life. I'd probably be like, just throw me in the trash seriously i'm, I'm, I'm good oh god but yeah like solitary confinement in guantanamo bay yeah like that has to just be like a pit in the ground yeah oh man guantanamo i was hearing some things about guantanamo bay recently about like some of the force feeding that they were doing with some of the people there mm-hmm. oh man it sounds just absolutely terrifying can is that something you want to elaborate on or is it too gruesome I, for i mean i was airways? just it was a. Uh, I was actually just listening to another podcast. I was talking about Ron DeSantis and like he had been stationed there for a little bit and he like people reported seeing him laughing when people were being tied to chairs with tubes up their noses to be force fed because there was a hunger strike going on. Uh. So (laughs) it's like the guy who was being force fed said he his his mouth and stomach were literally so full that food is coming back out and they were like, you better keep it all in. Otherwise, we're going to do this again until you're full. Yeah, so no, Guantanamo Bay is not good, is the gist of the story. <laughs> Another random fear I had growing up was <laughs> when, it's like, am I going to be sent to Guantanamo Bay? <laughs> that and quicksand. That and quicksand, for yeah. sure. So yeah, that's pretty much the story of how the sequence of events took place for the, bo- for the bombings to happen and the arrests to happen. But as I mentioned earlier, after the bombings and the court hearings for the original four men, conspiracies kind of began to spread pretty pretty quickly around the event, despite how fast all of the conspirators, aside from Yosef and Ishmael, were found. Questions of who sponsored the bombings arose, with some finding inconsistencies that led them to believe Yosef was a state-sponsored terrorist who was sent to the United States to carry out this plot, backed by the Iraqi government as revenge for the Gulf War. However, much of this argument relies on circumstantial evidences and doesn't explain why Yosef, if he had the resources of the Iraqi government, would have chosen random people in New Jersey to aid him, especially men of Salome's value or lack thereof. Yeah, you would think that he had more people from his boot camp days yeah, coming with him. Exactly. <laughs> but he also could have, I guess the argument here could have been, um, if you are on the conspiracy side, that he was so egotistical that he was, didn't want anyone else to challenge him. He just wanted a one man, yeah. That he makes, wanted to be the guy. Yeah, the guy, yes. But I don't think that's a strong enough argument. No. Because the mistakes the men made along the way to the bombing were amateur in nature, not that of an organized state-sponsored group of killers. For example, six months before the bombing, Salome failed his driving test four times and his vision test twice in New Jersey, only getting his license once he tried in New York. <laughs> This guy, like for real, <laughs> he's this just dude. Like the, and I, he's trying to participate in any way that he can. <laughs> he he just can't, can't even do it. Well, and then he can't drive because he gets him in an accident later yep. on. 
In addition, if they were state-sponsored, why would they have needed to use coupons to rent the van that they used to deliver the bomb? (laughs) Yeah, they had no money. Exactly. Again, like we talked about with their defense, they had no money. Even in a personal confession from Yosef, he told Secret Service agents on his flight back from Pakistan that he would have used more dangerous chemicals if they had the money to do it. Right. Like, they were able to scrounge up a very devastating bomb with very little resources. I I believe they said the bomb that they built was like $10,000, which is still a good amount of money. But considering when you have, if you, if you had the Iraqi government backing you, you would think they have have, 11,000. You have oil money. You can afford to sponsor one single terrorist, one big boy bomb. Yeah. Yosef's continued interviews placed even more doubt on a sponsorship for the plan, stating that he was extremely upset that the United States for supporting Iraq and Saddam Hussein, which, unless he was trying to say this to try and hide the fact that Iraq was his sponsor, puts a lot of doubt in the theory that Iraq gave them any funding. Right. So, who was giving money to them to build this bomb? Well, it was actually likely foreign help. But rather than an organized state sponsorship, it was a bunch of independent militant groups who shared the same values as the men in the quote-unquote Liberation Army. Some groups, such as the Islamic Jihad and the Hamas, were found to have connections with the group, making it likely that they sent some type of support. Abu Halima was found to have likely obtained funds from Egyptians in Egypt and Germany, but nobody was ever able to find out who that was. Many of these contributors likely never will be known. And at the end of the day, though, it's more likely than not that the quote-unquote Liberation Army was not sponsored by formal state funding, but rather by independent help. Right. Individuals that want to see the downfall of these different countries. Exactly. And that makes it more frustrating, I think, because there's so many people that were involved in this now that will never face a day of justice Mm. for what they did. But yeah, it's kind of way it goes which turns into like on our side outrage and hatred towards like a, a actual government right yeah. like trying to pin the blame like this conspiracy theory. or just consolidating the blame onto an entire group of like an entire nation of people yes you know? yeah another conspiracy that proliferated after the fact was the rumor that the bombers why am i so gassy, oh, gassy boy. <laughs> i didn't even have anything <laughs> Another conspiracy that proliferated after the fact was the rumor that the bombers planned to make some sort of aerosol chemical weapon that would release when the bomb exploded. This vapor would carry up the stairwells and elevator shafts and kill all who breathed it on their way out of the building. The reason for this thought process coming to light was due to statements from none other than Judge Kevin Duffy himself. These statements went largely unnoticed at the time of the hearings, but later it was found that Judge Kevin Duffy had asserted that the bombers had used sodium cyanide in their bomb. He said, quote, You had sodium cyanide around, and I'm sure it was in the bomb. Thank God the sodium cyanide burned instead of vaporizing. If the sodium cyanide had vaporized, it is clear what would have happened is the cyanide gas would have been sucked into the North Tower, and everyone in the North Tower would have been killed. End quote. So you're saying that wasn't an actual, so let me back up. It was, they did find sodium cyanide in their little concoctions, not concoctions, but like in the area. They found it in the storage containers. In the storage containers. Yes. Got it. But while this is all a chilling possibility, it is almost certainly untrue that the bombers would have been able to do this. 
First of all, the statement came after an FBI chemist talked about how sodium cyanide mixed with nitric acid and would create a toxic and deadly gas mixture. However, he had never stated that the investigation led him to believe that the bomb actually contained any sodium cyanide. Ah, yeah. And while a small amount of it was found in the storage container, the men would have needed a massive shipment of it for their bomb to work with it, and that would have required a site visit to be delivered, and it would have required a lot more money than the men had to acquire it in the first place. Right, so it was more the judge just kind of like getting it taken. Pretty, he, I think he just kind of misinterpreted the fact that they had some in the storage facility and connected it to... I think it villainized them even more. You, you got to make these guys look as bad as possible to the public. Right. So it's just kind of a, it ended up being a misleading cue for people to latch onto. In the court hearings, all of the chemical components of the bomb that agents were able to piece together from the limited evidence at the site were listed, and sodium cyanide was not on that list. Needless to say, no cyanide bomb was made by these men. Now, whether they had planned to use it is completely different because Yosef did talk pretty big game about it after his arrest. And luckily for everyone involved, that never was able to come to fruition. So this is another one, too, where if they were state sponsored, probably would have happened that way. Yeah, if they were state sponsored, that North Tower definitely would have been filled. Yeah. To sum up, the World Trade Center bombing of 1993 was an act by an independent terrorist cell who wanted to inflict maximum casualties on American soil. If Yosef's plan went how he wished it would, the tower they bombed would have fallen into the second tower, hopefully killing a quarter of a million people in the process. The goal of this plan was to pressure the U.S. administration to cease its aid to Israel and protest the killing of Palestinians by Israeli attacks. None of the letters written claiming responsibility for the bombings listed religious motivations, only revenge. Yosef was also simply driven by self-importance, because after all, he was an egomaniac, calling himself a quote-unquote genius and a quote-unquote explosives expert who believed himself to be a valuable terrorist. Fortunately for the United States, the plan to bomb the World Trade Center in 1993 fell massively short of its goal. Unfortunately, however, it paved the road for a follow-up attack, which, as many of you know, took place on September 11th, 2001, when two hijacked planes flew into both of the World Trade Center buildings, ultimately leading to both towers collapsing, killing nearly 3,000 people. The self-proclaimed mastermind of that attack would be none other than Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi Yosef's uncle. However, some good did come from the bombings as well. Port Authority invested more than a quarter of a billion dollars to enhance the World Trade Center's life safety and security systems, like a new security command center and a backup power system. Fire codes and safety measures were also significantly buffed, with light fixtures being added to the stairwells, an intercom system in the elevators, and glow-in-the-dark floor signage to provide guidance. K-9 units were trained after the attacks, and heavy concrete planters were added to the perimeter of the buildings to prevent vehicle-borne attacks. All of these enhancements and changes to emergency response were crucial to the 2001 attacks. As one survivor of the 1993 attacks named Alan Reese, who heads Port Authority's major capital projects department, testified in 2004, quote, The new life safety systems in place at the World Trade Center, along with the extraordinary and heroic efforts of both uniformed and civilian personnel, contributed to one of the largest evacuations of tens of thousands of workers and visitors at the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. So, 
after 1993, they did learn and they did adapt and it saved thousands of lives. It's insane to think that 9-11 could have been even more devastating yeah. if this event hadn't happened before and those safety measures were put in place. Right. That is terrifying to so, think of. I mean, on the one hand, it gave the terrorists a new path to attack, but it also gave us a new path to defending ourselves. So, right. I mean, <clears throat> this, I don't think the scales necessarily balance, right. but I mean... It is better than it could have been, I guess. It's crazy to think the individuals who conducted the bombing, like in their head, it was to achieve like this massive goal to send a message to the United States. And they're all relatively young yeah. men, like 26, 18, like in their 20s, like very passionate individuals who could have used whatever else their minds are good at uh to do something else right and said they do you think that they would have done this if they weren't already do you think they would have done this if it wasn't for yusuf the main main guy i don't think coming over or do you think like this would have happened regardless I don't think they would have done something this drastic. I I think Salome would have ended up doing something for sure, just because he had already tried to free Nocer from prison. Well, I don't know how. When I say tried, like that's a very generous tried. Mm-hmm. But I think that he would have gotten involved if it wasn't with Yosef, it would have been with someone else. And it would probably have been that Sheik who was planning to bomb the landmarks in New York. Right. So I don't know. I, I think he probably would have ended up getting caught in conspiracy with that pretty quickly but i don't know if i don't know if ayad would have necessarily i think like i said he just started a new career he just st- was about to start a family mm-hmm. so i think if yosef didn't come to him he probably would have just lived out his life right i think that's i throw some wacky what ifs at you sometimes <laughs> on the show but that's kind of where my head's at not forgiving anything that any of these people did but it's it's one ringleader it's a yes a to, I believe you use the word like a terrorist cell. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not connected to a foreign government. It's not connected to a representative of an entire people's. It's individuals or an individual who got accomplices to do this. It's a, it's pretty much a mini cult. Like, yeah, that's essentially what it is here. He he was the charismatic leader, and he got a bunch of people underneath him who listened to his charm. And I think that is the perfect way to describe a lot of terrorism. Yeah. It has this definitely like you hear the word terrorist and there's obvious negative connotations. Same as a cult. Yeah, exactly. Like the principles of terrorism and cultism, I believe are very similar. One, a cult usually does not end in massive violence in a majority of cults yeah. as opposed Hopefully, to even though yeah. like unless it's there like are those select few it's that self-inflicted violence a lot of the times so it's right yeah but i i mean in in essence terrorist groups are just cults of personality mm-hmm. like, you're usually just following one person who's the person he's the face you know so yeah and as That's for uh, Abu Halima, i think he probably would have done something eventually anyways just because he had already been involved with afghani uh, resistance fighters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think he, fighting and like war was just kind of in his lifestyle. So, right. But I don't know what he would have done. So, right. It's all speculation. Yeah. This is all conjecture. It's, it's just right? interesting to talk about. It is. 
As years come and go, so do anniversaries. With September 11th around the corner, it's important we remember those who lost their lives in the attacks of 2001 and those heroes who worked tirelessly to save people. But when February comes around, don't forget to think of those six people and that unborn child who lost their lives eight years earlier in the parking garage just below those same towers. And that is our coverage of the World Trade Center bombing of 1993. It's very interesting to think how much history happened in like a two block radius. Yeah. Right. Or a block radius. Changed the landscape of America forever. Changed, I mean, shortly after we would then come to wage war. Yeah. And change world politics for change the news cycle too. Completely. Like it this was kind of the beginning of the twenty four hour news cycle when mm-hmm. people were consistently covering the World Trade Centers, like mm-hmm. waiting for some development that kind of started the the face of we can watch news all day. Right. Right. I mean, it changed like the personality of all the youth yeah. in the country. I mean, both 9 11 and the 1993 bombings. So now we're just all sarcastic assholes that yeah. make jokes about both or that make jokes, quote unquote jokes about everything that happens in our lives. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I didn't mention this in the episode because it's not like entirely relevant, but I mean, February 28th was two days before the Waco siege started. Oh my the same God. year, same, like literally two days beforehand. And I think that's, con- this contributed partly to why the response to Waco was so severe. Right. Because and Janet Reno took over right after this happened and mm-hmm. she wanted to look like she was strong. She wanted to look like she didn't bend in the face of people who were questioning public morals and stuff like that. So, right. I, or actively a. But she was thinking actively opposing the government and looking to do something similar. And and they were told they were stockpiling weapons. So it's like, well, the World Trade Center just got bombed by people who were stockpiling chemicals. So what's the difference? Well, stockpiling weapons and grenades at Waco. So like explosions. Yeah. So, I mean. And they have a bus underground. (laughs) (laughs) It's just insane how we uh, all of this kind of ties in uh, to each other as we go. Well, Well, I mean, we'll see that with more than... More than we expect to, how, how they all end up being related in some way or another. Right. One thing leads to another. 1993, wow. What a year. The 90s were wild. The 90s were very wild. And that we, would be a very, because we do the yearly recaps, just like pick a random year, really dive into it and be like, whoa. Eventually, I do want to do an entire episode dedicated to 1968, because that is kind of touted as the worst year in American history. <laughs> Because it was like, oh God, yeah, it was Nam, RFK was shot, MLK was shot, like lots of stuff happened. Yeah, dude, that sucks. Crazy year, but yeah, that is the uh, '93 World Trade Center bombings. As I mentioned, like this is also important to remember. So next time February 26th rolls around, if you if it comes to your mind, just say a little prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever you do, whether you're religious or not, do something to just remember those that were lost in this too. Right, right, right. So thank you a ton again to our Patreon member, Jeff, Jeff who yes. suggested this topic. Um, when I first found out that this is what we were doing, it's like the listeners strike again. We have another <laughs> bummer, but I think that this, out of a lot of the topics, you know, it gives you more perspective. I mean, this is recent history. It's what's 
truly shaped where our country is now. Yeah. So I definitely appreciate the the suggestion. Uh, but speaking of Jeff, he was the one that suggested Unit 731. And someone, like literally two days ago, that listened, sent me an article that they just found another one of the underground bunkers from Unit 731 where they think <sighs> they housed people. Oh, it's it's just continues to get more terrifying as you hear more about it. So I'm going to consider that double jeopardy. So we don't have to do another <laughs> episode on it. We can only do an episode on a topic once unless Evan butchers it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the Evan horror story. That's the, the exactly. But uh, yeah, thank you again to all the Patreon subscribers. If you want to join them, you can find our Patreon page at gem, or excuse me, patreon.com slash gems of history podcast. You can also find us on Twitter X uh, at gems underscore history, myself at what Evskis, Jacob at Jacob from Wisco. You can then find us on Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. I think that's it everywhere. <laughs> uh, just search gems of history podcast and you'll be able to find us. Yeah, uh, I mentioned this last week, but we are, if you guys want to start sending in submissions for mm-hmm. listener stories for our Halloween episodes, you can do that. You can send them to gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Or if you just have anything related to something that we talk about that you want to discuss, we love hearing from you guys. And we would be more than happy to have a conversation. Email is just easy. So. Yep. <laughs> But yeah, that's all we got for you guys. Thank you for listening for the month of August. As Evan mentioned, if you guys want to be in the running to select our next month's topic, just go join the Patreon. Go do it now. Right now. Do it. What are you waiting for? I'll wait. We'll time you. One, two, three, four. Did you do it? Five, six, seven. All right, they did it. Unbelievable. (laughs) Thank you for listening. We love you. Stay polished.